On this week's Bet the Process podcast, Rufus and I welcome in the godfather of golf analytics, Mark Brody. He's the Bill James of golf analytics. And we give some master's picks and lots of master's talk. So with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a talent with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is Welcome pathetic. to another episode of the Bet the Process podcast. It's a very special master's edition episode rufus is fresh off the golf course um and uh giddy about some of the new work he's been doing in golf which i'm sure he's not willing to talk about on the podcast which is fairly typical it's you know it's like not useful to any of you seven out there unfortunately i mean in this case i think i have good reason to be quiet about this and anytime you can find alpha in a sort of hidden place it's not really great idea to make an announcement about what it is and where that place is you mean like nfl teasers no yeah fair point but i mean i don't think that was hidden well it you was, made it you made it you made it uh in made it more sight. accessible more <laughs> accessible i guess we should probably just not ever talk about that again um hey so, uh, i mean i think i still think it was a was and is a very useful product that Okay. Okay. Yeah. Let's let's let it go. We will. We will. We will. Let, let's let it. Let's let it go. Let's. Let Jeff, it. I'm also giddy about my own golf game. How did you play I played, today? I hit ten greens in regulation. I didn't score well. I had like, I don't know, four three putts. I had four shots out of bunkers, greenside bunkers, and none of them landed on. None of them finished on the green, or on the fringe, for that matter. So, I had did two they, into the did rough. Any of them, did any of them finish in the? In the same trap that you were hitting out of? Yeah, one of them did. They all actually went out of the bunker, but one of them came back in. Two of them went into the rough, and one of them went rolled across the green into a different bunker. What but course I haven't did you play in at? a while? I played Greenbrook in New Where? Jersey with uh, with our friend Chris Fargus. Was, but you know, we you're you're going to hear our interview later with Mark Brody, which is um, a banger because essentially he's the godfather of golf analytics he's even the though rufus, even though rufus would analytics. consider himself the the godfather of golf analytics or the no i'm, I'm not i'm not the godfather so are you mark brody's son but bill bill james no. think about what bill james did for baseball right he was the first guy it, it, and but then you had other people that came along and and sort of built on it and you know led teams to championships based on that so right. are you the Nate Silver? The Theo Epstein's of the world and stuff. I mean, I know you're a Red Sox fan. So I think, but I think Mark Brody was the guy to sort of open that door. It just took two shots on the range for me to figure something out. Something I had thought about before. What did you figure out? I just thought, I just literally thought, swing the club like Max Homa. Uh, and it worked. Which is what? Which is, Which is a- kind of that slow transition kind of going up and then just... And then that sort of natural, like engage, like fire the hips. And it's sort of that the rhythm of the swing and the, and the sort of the hip firing. And yeah, we were talking I was, I was about striking this the it other well day. off that. 
we're talking about this the other day with a couple of my friends that are pretty good golfers. And they were mentioning like all of this, the pro golfers, it's all about tempo for them. And that idea of like tempo, honestly, like for me too, like my golf game has gotten better when I've thought a lot about the tempo of my swing. In other words, just taking a, like a little, an extra second on the top to let my lower body start going forward before my arms do. And it, it keeps everything like my head behind the ball. And it generates lag more probably too. Yeah. I'm playing tomorrow also. I'm playing tomorrow with nice. a buddy of mine that's about a plus four. So that'll be fun. Nice. I do want to say that um, that Chris beat me one up. I, I was down five skins and I came back and won five holes in a row. To, and then he he popped in the last hole. And I three-putted from 18 feet. What's um, his handicap? Um, in the, I think in the 15 range. He just kind of took it up golf more seriously a year and a half, two years ago, and he's improved a lot. His short game's pretty good. He was he was a master out of the sand today. But well, we'll have to do a New York trip. I might I might be out there at the end of uh, at the end of April, and maybe we can play when I come out there. And Brody Brody says actually, and what like after we go off the air, he says that he'd love to get a foursome in New York. Yeah, going. I, I also wanted to say that me golfing during Masters Week is not a normal thing like this. But I was yeah, up was, till was I was terrible. up till six a.m. Sunday night. It was terrible working. planning, I, I, though. Well, I needed I needed something to get me out of the apartment because I'm I was going crazy. I hadn't seen the sun in a few days, and I'd been working eighteen hour days. And I'm not exaggerating. So, can you give can you give uh, our listeners some sort of insight into what you've been working on? You don't have to give the details, but something that is okay. gives them a little bit of intellectual curiosity about what sure, you've been working on. Sure, I I ba- basically some course fit stuff that I. I kind of stumbled upon just, just sort of thinking more deeply about some, some things and stuff that I wasn't able to quantify in the past that I had maybe tried a little bit, but not tried in as, in an, as nuanced a way. And I kind of, I feel like I opened the door on a whole new framework, which ended up being really, really um, successful. And in terms of actually, um, giving me new information and helping my projections. And I'll put it this way. Like I have what my sort of course fit effects adjustments were in the past. And, um, you know, I was kind of in the camp of, well, what makes Cameron Smith so good here. And now I'm in the camp of like, oh yeah, like this course adjustment here adds literally a quarter of a stroke to his course fit stuff relative to Rory. So I feel like I've gotten, I was able to hone in on some stuff there that I think will be really beneficial going forward as well as hopefully this week, because we certainly have a lot on the line this week. And we have the like, Calcutta starting tomorrow, which will be exciting. I'm excited yeah. for a golf Calcutta. Although it's been I, I get what? it is, it is golf Calcuttas are my weakest Calcuttas, Jeff. And, and um, I can give you a good analogy to explain why. So okay. I think in a Calcutta, uh, well, first off my, numbers are pretty baked into the market at this point. Right. And I think Adam especially has a good idea what they are. Um, so I'm at a disadvantage there because the market is basically already set off of mine. So the ideal situation is if you have numbers that are not consensus market numbers um, and you get to pay market price and you just have to be directionally correct. So let's say you have a model. Let's say you're just modeling golf matchups or any, honestly anything in any sport. Uh, the market's minus 110, minus 110 on something. And you have a model and your number, your fair price is minus 170. 
you might say, wow, that's a garbage model. This is so far off market. Just like when Jeff says he has a 70% EV on, on, the, on all the groups that he bids on, right? It may be far off market, but if it's directionally correct, that minus 110 can be a very good bet. However, if somebody else has a model kind of that's similarly off market and that all is also directionally correct and, and he is willing to take it at minus, he takes it at minus 110 and moves that price to minus 130, your minus 130 is probably not very good. And so in essence, you are, as long as you are uniquely off market and directionally correct, you're very advantaged in a Calcutta, I think. Um, but if there was somebody else who had the sort of same model um, or a similar model, you're, you're going to be at a bigger disadvantage because you're no longer paying market price. You're paying a worse than market price because or, because in this Calcutta, the market is different and there is somebody else who um, is in the same direction as you there. So does that make sense? Yeah, it does make it, sense. Thank you. And I mean, I think I think we end up with we end up with um a a fair amount of I think our model is in that way that it is directionally different than the market. Um often hopefully directionally correct. Hopefully directionally right. correct. I mean we haven't but, won in a we haven't won in a golf calcut in a while. So we'll, well see. You you cleaned up the first year. But if it we is cleaned up for a little bit, but like it's you know, like we did well. I've done well and I haven't done well in either college basketball Calcutta. Um, I've done obviously fairly well in the golf Calcuttas. I did well in the college football Calcutta and the NBA Calcutta. So the, the non-traditional, like the NCA, like to, to, to the NCA one to me is similar to the golf one to you. That's the one I really want to do well in. And I never seem to do well in it. So, yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've kind of resigned to the fact that for the golf one, I kind of maybe have to take a slightly different approach and, and, in essence, I'm not going to be able to own as many golfers because I'm not going to show the value. And and essentially I'm betting in small edges into market resistance. So I'm going to make sure I tomorrow are you excited to to bid against on the field against me? Um it, who's in the field that your friend well, Gordon Sarge? I was he's not in the field, is he? Yeah, he is. I thought he was in one of the last groups. No, I think no, he's he's, in the field. he's field. Okay. Well. I was I was telling Jeff this is why I shouldn't talk before the Calcutta to Jeff about who I like, but that that Gordon Sargent is a very good golfer and would be essentially like JT Poston level if he was on tour right now, just based on his collegiate numbers and he's 19 years old. He apparently has and, and wait, who was talking about him in such glowing terms today? I think it was Billy Horschel who said he he has a swing speed of 190 miles an hour and he's under control. And I how, think how are you able to gets, take his college data and create and like come up with JT Poston as his comp? Well, I just literally looked at the field there and saw someone with a similar like number in terms of just pure strokes gained. Mark, when you had Mark on earlier today, um, an interview, which I'm sad to have missed, but I, I listened to it and I thought it was fantastic. Um, and I, and I was, I will say I, helped provide questions for the interview. But when I, what he said about estimating true strokes gain, that's basically what I do. So I'm able to look and see based on the players he's played against and as an amateur um, and how good they are. And we can kind of impute how good they are because he's played against guys that eventually end up playing against other 
you know, going on and playing the web.com tour or something, right? Guys who were senior in college and next year they play web.com or other mini tours or and eventually we're able to get enough connections in essence that we can compare somebody um, at the lower ranks to somebody at the higher ranks just using the difference in scores per round for guys playing the same force on the same day. Did but you this guy, my... Gordon Sargent, Good. He, um, I was able to bet him at, uh, we got him at 2000 to one, actually. Um, I think that was Sunday night. I realized that having my numbers ready Sunday night, which I did my initial numbers, um, is a big advantage actually, especially it's on probably masters for when everybody masters, has markets, right? Yeah. For the when, masters, yeah. right. Because no other tournament places have numbers up yet, really. But for the masters, um, yes, it's, I think I own over half of the win probability or the outright market, Jeff. I think we wow. have something like 36 golfers that overall, like, I mean, I bet Scheffler a little bit in early February. I have some Rory. One guy I conspicuously do not have, though I still think he's a very good golfer. And maybe I shouldn't tell you this because you, you're going to assume I'm going to go crazy bidding on him tomorrow, is John Rahm. I, mean, I have I... no John Rahm exposure, not a single bit. But, you know, I have some Cantlay, I have some Finau. I have our model numbers Joffley, in front of me already. Have so some I, DJ, I, have some Cam Young. Like literally, I it, it's it's like which guys up top do I not have? Because it's all it's all price dependent when I bet it, and also the fact that Circa has like a twelve percent hold. So there's, you know, I bet like I bet Finau at like a four percent edge just because I didn't want to be didn't want him to feel left out, and I think <laughs> he's gonna win. Just my gut. I took some Finau futures in the hope that he that he wins. I want him um, to win. I, I he's he's, I he's easy got to root for. I yeah, know that's... I like Pino too. I played golf with his brother once. Yeah, it was really good. Jeff, did you um, notice? Did you notice he was winning the golf tournament last week up until sun the midday Sunday? Uh, yeah, Patrick Rogers. Yeah, my yeah, Patrick Rogers, good old P Rog. Yeah, and it was a tournament where we didn't actually have that much exposure on him. So aside from actually adding some exposure during the tournament when I showed value. I uh, was mostly rooting against him because if Patrick Rogers wins and I do not buy a private island with that money, um, it's going to feel like a big disappointment just given all the money I've invested there over the years. And I mean, honestly, instead, it was like going to be with that money from last week, I could buy like a Mazda and maybe a used Kia to go with it. You know who I had last week as my like random future? Corey Connors. No, I mean, I, I actually, there were, there were three guys I was choosing between before the tournament. It was Corey Connors, but he was only like 25 to one cooch. So, so I wanted, no, it was Brendan Todd. Oh, cause I know, cause I know he, you like him sometimes and you bet on him. And so he was like 50 to one or something like that. And, uh, there was a point on Saturday where he looked really good. I mean, he, he was, was only like three strokes back or something like that. And then he just collapsed. He, he finished like fifth. He finished like 15 strokes off the lead at least yeah he par. just collapsed he, he collapsed michael thompson was a guy that i was very very big on and he kind of um he was he was actually in the final group on saturday and yeah he did not i mean he had a very, not good saturday and a very bad sunday so not as bad did, as todd did you did have you, a twist did you have a, a tilted moment of the week probably um yeah, yeah, I did. 
What I'm an Orioles it? fan. I think that should tell you enough. It wasn't a betting tilted moment. It was watching the Red and, Sox and it's beat against, the Orioles. It's against, yeah, after Ryan McKenna dropped a fly, a routine fly ball, which would have ended the game. And then Jose Bautista allows a homer, the next batter in the ninth. The so. Red Sox are going to be so bad. They're going to be so bad. I mean, did you the watch, Orioles, did you the watch Orioles, that game last night? The Orioles the are going to be so good. Did you watch that basketball game last night? No, we had we had an over on it, and so I, I saw some te- random messages in our group chat and about how t- the teams were missing all these layups in the first half, and and how San Diego State, how they didn't know how they made it this far in the tournament, much less like even won a single game, given how their bad their offense looked. But turns out it turned around, and and I watched the maybe I watched from like the six minute mark until the game went over and then turned it off. So you watched like this small stretch of time where it looked like San Diego chance state had a tiny chance. They got it and, down and to wait, like six. I watched, I watched maybe I actually watched basically those same stretches in the first and second half. So I saw UConn extend the lead to 16 and San Diego state miss a bunch of layups. And then I saw, I turned it on again when San Diego state was down six or eight. Yeah. They got and it then, down to five, I think. And what's, what's interesting about this game. And I think, I think people will think that I am crazy when I say this is that I think it was, could, could have been a closer game than, than like I, I, yeah, San Diego state got, it got out of like what they do. They tried to play Which too much what? early. It's just the grind, you down, grind you down, but, grind you down, grind, limit offensive possessions, grind you down. Don't turn the ball over. Don't they you know, couldn't go inside. The- I don't think they're a great three point shooting team. Are they? They're just not a great the, shooting team, period. Right. right. And, and so they, they, UConn they is a really, really good defensive team around the rim. I mean, you don't have to know that much about basketball to know they that. Have, they have, they have, they have two yes. good tall they have guys. Two rim and they're, protectors they're very can, long. So it makes it really hard to make layups. But, but you not, but UConn's opportunity, sorry, San Diego State's opportunity to, to win that game was live ball turnovers that could lead to early, early like easy baskets. And then just kind of grinding out on limiting possessions. And instead, what they did is they tried to get more early offense than I ever saw them do and caused them to turn the ball over often. Like getting blocked at the rim is getting blocked at the rim. That was going to happen. I, I don't, if they do that with not much time left to go in the shot clock, I don't care. It's more that they just got out of what is their really, really, you know, methodical not very efficient, but at least limiting possessions and not giving up turnovers kind of thing, getting a shot off almost every time. I, I want to counter you though. I think your best set against a really good defensive team like UConn with rim protectors like that is to get them when they're not really set on defense. I, I agree a hundred percent, but I also just don't think that I, I don't think that they were going to win that game by having more efficient offense. I think they were going to win that game by grinding it out and trying to get easy buckets off UConn turnovers. Quote, grinding it out. You sound like a typical talking head. No, grinding it out means limiting limiting the total number of possessions in the game, not ever turning live ball turnovers. The expected value of a live ball turnover is, is much higher. You know, yes, and like at least and- getting a shot off compared to giving a live ball turnover up. Like this isn't just a talking head thing. This is like, you know, like this is a a recipe that they did not choose and which was good because I was with you on the over. So at least the over came in. Okay. It sounds like you're saying what they needed to do was execute better. Cause that's kind of what it comes down to. I don't think they had, I think they had a plan 
I think they got out of their game plan very early on because they made a couple shots early. I'd like I, you don't you didn't watch the game, but they they scored ten points in like the first three minutes or something like that, and then they didn't score. They literally didn't score another field goal for like twelve more. 12 I saw I saw that. a little thing when I turned it on the graphic that said zero field goals in the last eleven minutes and twenty five seconds. I mean, so. this is just dumb. I'm having a conversation about a game that someone didn't even watch, so we'll move on. Uh, why don't we bring it, bring in Mark Brody, and um, then we'll talk to you guys all again on the other side. Now, welcome in Mark Brody to the Bet the Process podcast. Mark, welcome. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It is quite an honor to be graced by the presence of the godfather of golf analytics. <laughs> can, you, can you tell us a little bit about your background, um, specifically before golf and then how you became the godfather of golf analytics uh, well i became the godfather because some golf writer wanted to uh write a headline i guess <laughs> so i'm not sure how to how to take that exactly but uh my background is being a professor at columbia business school that's my full-time job and uh in the last decade probably i've been spending quite a lot of time doing uh golf analytics and creating the, uh, the strokes gain stats that was then adopted by the, the PGA tour and more recently worked on a new algorithm for the official world golf rankings that, uh, started last August. So what, what started off as a, uh, uh, kind of a fun passion project, probably around 2003, four or five has, uh, sort of mushroomed into this, uh, uh, golf analytics from all different viewpoints. So explain a little bit about what is strokes gained and maybe sort of the, the genesis behind, behind it. So the, the main reason for strokes gained is trying to understand the different skill sets of, of golfers. And I was interested for amateur golfers. Where do the 10 strokes between a golfer who shoots 90 and a golfer who shoots 80 where do they come from? How much is driving? How much is putting? How much is wedge shots? And strokes gained allows you to decompose performance down to an individual shot. And then you can compare if somebody's 10 strokes better than another, where, where did those 10 strokes come from? So the idea is you want to measure the value of a shot relative to a benchmark. And if you hit it closer to the hole it's gaining strokes further from the hole it's it's losing strokes so it it kind of is a, a replacement for traditional golf stats like driving distance fairways hits greens and regulation or number of putts and those traditional stats were very flawed for uh, a lot of reasons same way in in other sports just uh Take, take just about any statistic like batting average. Well, that's going to be biased against players that face tough pitchers. Like if, if you're a, a great batter and the other team is going to bring in a relieving relief pitcher late in the game, your batting average isn't going to be as good as if uh, a player is facing a, a weak, weak pitcher. So there's all sorts of uh, stats in, in every sport that can be made more informative by improving the modeling or the benchmark that you're measuring against. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of when I was listening to some of the stuff you were talking about of, of contextualizing data in sports is really like one of the biggest contextualizing performance, right? Because ultimately in football, we have the whole idea of, of rushing yards um, and they're happening, you know, rushing attempts happening in a game where someone's winning um, and that being correlated to winning, not necessarily causal for winning or even just like someone being able to, you know, uh, come back in a football game or put up a lot of um, passing yards in a football game in a game that they're down by a lot. Um, this whole concept of contextualizing data, I think, is is at the key or at the core of the sort of sabermetrics and money ball movement in sports. Um, strokes gained isn't just contextualizing it ultimately, right? Because all, what you're what what I do think it's it's doing is creating a new metric that allows you to isolate different parts of the game. So, like one of the things I think that's that's exciting about you know, golf is like, you can, there's not a lot of necessary interactions, right. And, and in football, one of the hardest parts is like isolating what the interaction is between the say offensive line and the running back and whatnot. And, and, and in golf, we're able to sort of separate these out. So maybe speak to that a little bit in terms of how that's a real unlock for strokes gained. Yeah. So you probably know like basketball plus minus or whatever, it's, it's very hard to figure out the contribution of a particular offensive lineman because it's it's working as a group. In golf, you would have greens in regulation and putts per round having a negative correlation. And so what would happen if you would hit a green in regulation, it was probably 30 feet from the hole, whereas if you miss a green and you chip it close, you might be five feet from the hole. And if you then go and count putts, the person that hits a lot of greens has longer putts. And so it was on average going to take more putts. Somebody that misses a green and chips it close is going to have fewer putts. And this negative correlation is sort of a clue that putts per round is not a pure measure of putting. And because it's affected by where you started on the green and it's affected by how many greens in regulation did you hit. And that's something that's not averaged out over the course of a season. There are players that hit more greens and fewer greens and their putting statistics reflect that. And so the main flaw in putts per round is it doesn't take into account the difficulty of the putt. The most extreme example is if you're off the green and you chip in, that counts as zero putts. And so from your putting stats, lower is better. It looks like you're a great putter when it has nothing to do with putting. It has to do with chipping in uh, from, from off the green. So what strokes gain does is it measures each shot by itself independent of anything before it or anything after it. So putting, it will rate a hold five foot putt different than a hold 30 foot putt because those are very different performances and different in, in difficulty. So it allows you to decompose a score into how much of it came from superior driving, better approach shots, better wedge shots, or, or better putting. And you can use different categories. You can do different distance ranges or other things. But But the idea is to uh, have this decomposition of total performance into different types of skills in the, in the game of golf. Why do you think the tour cared so much about sort of the strokes gain putting piece? Like what was their motivation? Because that was ultimately like the first strokes gain metric that got um, them interested, correct? Yeah. Cause putts per round was horrible <laughs> and, and they realized it was horrible and everybody looked at it. It was horrible. And all the announcers and players and media knew it. There's a, um, a a story that uh, Gary McCord 
wasn't wasn't a winner on the tour, but he was leading in putts per round. And so when it came to the last round of the last event in the season, if you are a leader in one of these main statistical categories, you get a little trophy or something. And he wanted to be the putts per round leader. So he intentionally missed every green in his last round that he played so that he would uh, maintain his lead in, uh, in the putts per round category, just showing how absurd this, uh, this uh, metric was. So they, awesome. wanted to, they wanted to replace putts per round, and they tried all sorts of things. Putts per green in regulation was not understandable by anybody. Uh, length of hold putts. Somebody holds 105 feet of putts versus 40 feet of putts. So you want to hold more putts. That was ridiculous, too, because if you have a 60-footer that ends an inch from the hole versus goes in the hole, that's the difference between having one inch of hold putts and 60 feet of hold putts. It was just too variable and not, not very meaningful. So they were searching. They had this great shot link data and this really bad putting stat, and they wanted to use the shot link data to come up with a better putting stat, which is I happen to be in the right place at the right time. I had a solution to that problem that they were looking for. That's awesome. So of all the strokes gain metrics, because obviously it's expanded now, you know, beyond putting into sort of like uh, approaches and, and drives and whatnot, which is the most predictive? So of success over any, you know, period of time, uh, approach shots tends to be the most predictive. And it's not quite opposite of the uh, drive for show, putt for dough. <laughs> which would indicate that putting is the most important. And if you take a look at the best players in the world, the best players are the best ball strikers. They drive it far and they hit great approach shots. And that goes from Rory McIlroy, Scotty Scheffler on, on down the list. And usually in the top 10 in the world, there might be an exception uh, in, in among that list. But the best players in the world are the best ball strikers. And where putting comes in, putting is certainly important, but where it comes in is like it's the differentiator between these great ball strikers and the best putters tend to win that week. So it's not that putting doesn't matter. It's like the differentiating factor among those at the top of the leaderboard is who's going to putt the best. But the most predictive in terms of success in a golf event is um, strokes gained approach. And if you want to widen that, it would be ball striking, strokes gained driving plus strokes gained uh, approach, those two. And putting, because it's so variable week to week, is not very predictive of uh, uh, success in winning a golf tournament. So that's that was actually what I was trying to, was, wanted to get to, right? Which is this idea, is putting the most correlated with success or even causal to success, but the hardest to predict from week to week? Yeah, if you, if you take a look at a player in the week that they win, it's almost like you're looking at a different player than what is their DNA throughout the season. So a player's DNA throughout the season is the most predictive, and that's where ball striking comes to the fore. But if you take a look at the week in which a winner won, you are looking at this unicorn that that week, what did they do differently than what they normally do? Because that, that week was, was unusual even for the best player in the world to win because the best players in the world might win one, two, or three times a year. They're not winning every week. 
So what do they do differently in the week they win? Well, they hit their approach shots better and they putt better. And it's almost equal contributions from both of those. But what people kind of focus on is, is the putting. It's rarely the case that somebody wins and putts poorly. It's almost always the case that you include, you combine a hot putter with uh, even better than average uh, approach shots, and that leads to a victory. So putting matters in, in the end for sure, but it's hard to predict because you can take an average putter and one week they'll put four good putting rounds together and next week they'll have four bad putting rounds. And it's, it's hard to predict uh, whether a person is going to putt very well beyond, uh, you know, on top of their, their season long average. Certainly if you're better putter throughout the season, you'll have more good putting rounds, but these exceptional putting rounds that lead to, to victories are hard to predict. Makes sense. So what, um, what was the most surprising takeaway for you when you started diving into this stuff, like specifically from the shot link data, was there anything that was counterintuitive to what you believed? I mean, it sounds like there is some, some notion of like what makes a good golfer, um, or, you know, putting versus ball striking, et cetera. Um, but ultimately what, were there any things that just surprised you? I think the most surprising thing was when I compared this to amateur data, the same results held. That is going from shooting 90 to shooting 80, about six and a half of those shots come from outside of a better, better shots outside of hundred yards and about three and a half from inside hundred yards. So that same ball striking counts for two thirds and short game and putting counting for one third of score differences, not only applies at the PGA tour or the professional level, but it also applies to, to amateurs between 80 and 90 and between 90 and 100. It was amazing that regularity that uh, I didn't suspect at the time, but in hindsight makes, makes perfect sense. Okay, now, now we're talking about how do we use this or apply this in the wild. What are some of the best applications of, that, of strokes gain now that you've had it? How long has it been out there for the public to play around with? Uh, stroke gain putting was in 2011. So, and then strokes gain driving and approach was about 2016. So it's been out there for, uh, all of them about, about six years. And, uh, I think golf betters use this all the time. And I, I know people that one of the simplest things that they would do was rank players by strokes gain T to green, basically take out putting and just rank players by strokes gained tee to green. And that was uh, a better predictor of future success than scoring average or, or other things. But you can, you can do even better than that. When you're talking about contextualizing things, one of the things that you want to do is not only adjust for the course conditions, but you also want to adjust for the strength of the field. So it's, it's different if you, if you, um, putt better than the field average at the Barracuda tournament than putting better than the field average at the tour championship, because the tour championship is already composed of about the best 30 players that season. So just adjusting to the field will penalize you for playing in strong field events. Uh, so you can do these, these adjustments to get what would players shoot if they played on a neutral course and 
that's another adjustment that's not on the, the PGA Tour uh, website, but you can find it elsewhere, like on Data Golf. Their true stroke gained is what we've been doing for a while, which is adjusting for the, the strength of the field. And if you just rank players by that, that's a pretty good uh, predictive uh, algorithm. So then that actually brings a really good question. We're entering Masters Week. And for the first time, probably ever, we have a pretty critical mass of players who are at the top playing in a completely different tour um, and a completely different set of competitions than, um, you know, than, than the rest of the golfers. So do we, do we think, how do we think about this in terms of, it sounds like you were working on the new over, you know, the new world golf rankings, but how do we think about if you're better going into the masters comparing the live golfers with the PGA golfers? So this is just it's kind of a lack of data issue. Number one, there's no shot link for the live golfers. So all you have are scores, um, but you can you can do an adjustment based on the scores, and that is on a number of websites, including Data Golf. They include uh, live live golf score results. So just going back, the official World Golf rankings are not a good way to predict future performance. Strokes gained is much better, <laughs> and the reason for that is when you look at the official World Golf rankings. It's adding what we would think of as noise because it has such a bonus for winning. So if you win a tournament by one shot, you get an incredible premium for winning. Whereas in terms of strokes gain, you're just one shot better than second place. And in terms of what's going to predict the future better, uh, the noise of, of winning and getting this huge premium for winning in the official world golf rankings makes them not very predictive going forward. So what you'd want to do is you want to take scores and adjust them for course difficulty and strength of field, uh, which, again, this double adjusted strokes gained is what Data Golf calls true strokes gained. And if you just dump in the live scores, uh, you'll get uh, a fair ranking of those players. So, okay, now let's go directly to the Masters. Um what you know do you i assume that you know a fair amount about sort of augusta and have have studied studied the course and and players what makes someone good at augusta i've done that a little bit not as much as uh as rufus has but uh mm -hmm. certainly looked at it a little bit so what why do you think course history seems to matter so much at augusta or does it so i think um there's three big factors if you want to predict the outcome of a golf tournament. Number one is a player's sort of baseline skill level. And you could think of that as measured by strokes gained over the course of six months, a year, two years. And I think that is the number one factor. And then you want to make adjustments to that. And the adjustments to that could be, well, how well is the player played in recent weeks? So not just going back a year or two, but how have they done in the last four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, something like that. So what's their current form? And then the other is this course fit idea. And certain courses favor certain types of players. And if you, if you play certainly in the, uh, the open championship and it's really windy, you have to know how to hit it low and control your ball in the wind. And that's a different skill than the target golf in a, in a parkland kind of, kind of course. 
And Augusta is known for having almost no rough, wide fairways. So driving accuracy, for example, doesn't matter as much at Augusta as it does at other courses with tight fairways and, and high rough. So the course matters, but I'd, I'd say that's an adjustment that you do. It's like a second order effect, which, which matters if you are better, but it's a second order effect. I wouldn't, none of those course adjustments are going to swamp the, the first order effect is, which is on baseline, how good is a player? Okay. So then <clears throat> this is then kind of defying what you just said, but from an <laughs> analytics perspective, can you describe what the master's winner would look like? Like if I were to, to sort of, de you know, you hear all these people that say like, oh, you know, like has to have played three times there before all this kind of stuff. But just from a standpoint of like skill set, you know, how would you describe that that master's winner from an analytics perspective? I would say they're uh, driving distance is an advantage at all courses. It's more of an advantage at Augusta. Uh, driving accuracy is an advantage at all courses. It's less, it matters less at, at Augusta, uh, putting, especially speed control matters at all courses, but more at Augusta because fast slopey greens is going to favor, uh, good putters and especially good putters with, uh, with great kind of speed, speed control. Augusta is sort of known as a second shot golf course. and um, I think there's different ways that you can measure course fits and there's, um, it's true that the winners of tournaments tend to hit the best approach shots, but it's also true that the margins are so fine at Augusta that great approach shots aren't necessarily rewarded, meaning you can hit an approach shot that's one yard off your target. And then it rolls 50 yards back in the fairway versus one yard to the other side and it funnels toward the pin. And so those kind of things, um, you could say, well, yeah, if you're great at approach shots, you're going to have more of those that hit the green and funnel toward the pin than otherwise, you know, miss the green a little bit and then, then go even, even further away. But that adds an element of randomness in the, the same way that bumpy greens add an element of randomness. So it's true that you look at the winner, yeah, they'll be the one that hit the great approach shots, but they're not necessarily the best approach shot players leading into the tournament. So it's a little bit less of a predictor of performance than than I would have expected, given Augusta's reputation as a second shot golf course. Interesting. So give us, what do you think the, you know, moving on to sort of just general analytics about golfers, what do you, what do you think sort of the biggest leaks are in the pro golfers games today? Like what are the areas that they could easily like pro golfers could fix with like knowledge of better knowledge of analytics? Well, this is mainly assuming that uh, not, not all the listeners of this podcast are great golf fans, but uh, certainly in the, in the last couple of years, many players have, realize that distance isn't uh, sort of a, a physical limitation that you're born with. <clears throat> that even at the PGA Tour level, where players are much, much longer than, than others, uh, there's still room to add 20 yards. And the most famous example is Bryson DeChambeau when he bulked up 
over less than six months and then went out and won the U.S. Open at wing foot, adding 20 yards to his to his driving distance. At the time, Matt Fitzpatrick was quoted as saying, you know, driving distance isn't a skill. It shouldn't be a skill, whatever. And he was not one of the long. He was about an average length hitter. He spent two years doing speed training and increasing his drive distance. And he goes out and wins the U.S. Open at Brookline. And so even at the PGA Tour level, where you think these players have been hitting it as far as they can in high school, in college, in the Corn Ferry Tour, and then the PGA Tour, many of them figured out that they have 5, 10, 15 more yards that they could add on top of what they've been doing, and that the improvement in score that comes from that can dominate the improvements from just working on your putting or working on your short game or other parts of the game because distance is a weapon. If you're 20 yards longer than the field average, that happens week in and week out. Whereas putting, sometimes you get hot, sometimes you don't. It's very hard to drastically improve your putting by a stroke around. It's possible to improve your stroke gain driving by a stroke around by getting longer. So I think that's one of the, the biggest changes uh, in the last few years is re- realizing and quantifying the, the value of, of driving distance. So is that would that be, Rufus has down a, a question he want to ask about the biggest thing amateurs like him and myself could do to improve our scoring. It sounds like you would tell us to work on our distance. Well, that's kind of a long-term goal, but the biggest differentiator going back to this is approach shots. And for amateurs, um, so there, there's two things. What, what is the biggest differentiator? And then how hard is it, is it to achieve that? <laughs> how long would it take you to, to, to make a certain level of improvement? And for amateurs, I would recommend 150-yard approach shots, whatever that is, or a range between 100 and 200 yards is the biggest differentiator between a player that shoots 80 and a player that shoots 90. So approach shots from 100 to 200 yards, I would put as number one. Uh, Number two, in terms of scoring potential, it would be drive distance. Uh, So some of the things I'm not saying there are drive accuracy. Accuracy only matters that you've got to keep the ball in play. So you got to respect the hazards and not hit drives out of bounds or into, into penalties or water or whatever. But uh, how many fairways you hit doesn't matter so much as just keeping keeping the ball in play. But if you can hit it 20 yards further, then that not only helps your driving, but it helps your approach shots. Because on this 150-yard shot, maybe instead of having a six iron, you have a seven or an eight iron in. And that, that has this knock-on effect of improving your approach shots. So distance cuts both ways. And none of this is to the exclusion of short game and putting because it could be that you could spend, you know, five hours practicing your short game and putting and pick up more shots than you would spending five hours on a different part of your game. You know, picking up 20 yards is not something you can just flip a switch and do this. It took, you know, months of, of concerted effort from, from players to, to pick up uh, distance. Okay. And then our final question is, can you give us a, a master's pick? It doesn't have to be analytical based. Is it, do you have someone that you like? You like because we are we are a betting podcast at the end of the day. Yeah, so 
I would say you want to take somebody who's under the radar because the, the, the usual suspects are at the top of anybody's list. So slightly under the radar, I would say would be Max Homa. Uh, he, he'd be my under the radar pick that not too many people are, are talking about. Okay. I like it. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I'm going to take some of your learnings out to the golf course tomorrow and try to actually hit greens because I never actually tried to hit greens, but now that I know it's important, I'll try to actually hit them. So that'll probably be the difference. So <laughs> yeah, thanks for aim, joining aim, us, Mark. Aim, aim for the middle of the green. That'll maximize your chance of hitting it. <laughs> Good advice. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Have a great day. So that was our interview with Mark Brody. I think that's the definitive Mark Brody interview ever, even though that NBC Sports interviewed him for like a whole big, have you seen the video of him? They they do a whole video of him for like before one of their tournaments. It's like a feature on Mark Brody. I didn't, but I did, I did hear him on the golf um, analytics panel at the Sloan conference. <laughs> he's, he's very, very good at distilling these concepts and explaining them. Um, in a he's concise a, way that makes he's sense. A prof- he's a professor, yeah. dude. I mean, like that's who, what who professors got to do. Yeah, they got to communicate out this stuff. What, what was your, was there a, was there one insight from that interview that you found interesting? What like what was an insight? I mean, there are some things that I uh, well, I think the notion that approach is the the best way to get better for us it makes a little bit of sense. But I mean, I do think at the professional game, like I think off I, I've always thought off the tee is the thing that matters the most. Uh, that's that's what but maybe he's looking at it in a different way maybe um yeah i don't i don't know if he answered that question in quite the same way that um you or i was were posing it um because ultimately like you know the the there were two i I think i asked him what's most predictive right and so he was saying like the approach or like you know getting the ball close to the the I would what? say off the tee is the most predictive because it's, but part of that is because of the, our ease of measuring it. Everybody's teeing off from a teeing ground where they get to put a tee in the ground and put the ball however high they want. We don't have to analyze the lie or anything like that. Whereas an approach shot, um, there could be a tree right in front of the guy and he has to hit some hook around there and, and strokes gain isn't necessary. It's going to say, okay, this was 123 yards out and he hit it to the front bunker, but it doesn't know that he has to have, his shot making was so affected by this, that that was actually a good shot. Do you know what I mean? So I think, I don't know if the skill of hitting iron shots is more predictive than the skill of hitting drivers off the tee, but I think we are better measuring drives and how good they are. So that that tends to be more consistent. I'll buy that. I mean, I just think the whole notion of like golf and where you find value from predictive standpoint versus a like causal because like mandatory well just the 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 putting obviously is is incredibly correlated and causal with winning right but it's the least probably predictive from tournament to tournament so you know it's kind of like what would be what would be the analogy here in in another sport um i guess it would be like points off turnovers yeah it'd be points off turnovers yeah 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 yeah, it, it like clearly there's no, but it's, certain it's guys. Le- it's, le- it's, it's, it's similar. It's like right? There are clearly quarterbacks that throw fewer interceptions than others. Yeah, but overall, you that know, one's probably. I like more, that one. I like that better because there's some level of control quarterbacks have, and there's some level like 
fumbling and that fumble luck is like just pure luck, right? Yes. Like, I, I, I don't want to say, I don't want to say putting is pure luck, right? No, it isn't. Clearly there, you know, it just like Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady being able to limit interceptions isn't pure luck. A.A. Ron? But, but if, if, um, Tom Brady had a three interception day. Well, it's maybe not use him because he was kind of on his way out. But if Mahomes has a three interception day, I'm not going to vastly change my my thoughts on on his ability to limit interceptions going forward in a drastic way. Okay. Whereas, actually, I'm not going to change anything based on one game there. Uh, that example. I, I, what I was trying to say was that putting like a longer time horizon, you care about a longer time horizon for putting because there is so much noise. You need a longer time horizon to really gauge how good somebody is. And it's the same thing in a way with interceptions and stuff because interception, but for a different reason, because they happen so infrequently that if you're measuring just based on someone's interception rate, it's going to take, um, it's going to take a lot of a large sample for that to stabilize. Okay. Um, pick of the week. By the way, I, I wonder, I kind of am bummed that I didn't ask Brody the, the seven questions and didn't uh, ask him what his most unrelatable food is. But oh, I also man. said we should probably have him back on sometime when we want to guess where you can like nerd out with him a little bit. Yeah. I, I'm really disappointed that I wasn't able to actually join because I, you know, I, no, it was, I was it, was, it was fun. We'll do it. We'll but, do it next time. You know, the interview probably is a lot more smooth and, and took fewer tangents. So. Do you, I, I want to know first, Jeff, do you have any insights into the masters? Um, do, do you I have from, any insight? as you said, you were looking at your, at, at, at the model that you were using for the Calcutta. I mean, I think it's interesting for the Calcutta that like the, like, I think this whole live thing is very interesting, right? I think these golfers that the data isn't as consistent and will there be, I wonder if that will create more uh differences in the market versus you know i mean like if the calcutta will end up we'll end up with like some of the live golfers being mispriced or differently priced um i think that might be kind of interesting you're right Um, i mean there isn't the strokes gain data but i will say you can impute things based on the stats you do have it's not as perfect but if you know that a guy's driving distance and driving accuracy have been good on live you can surmise that his off the T strokes gained average has been good. So you can, you can kind of impute those values and then based on that and, and can, I mean, clearly it's not as it's easiest with off the T, but you can, you can't, you can do something with it. I'll put it that way. Yeah. I don't, I don't got a lot really. Um, in terms of, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at our numbers. I don't want to give anything away to you. Um, you know, but, uh, where do you have Gordon Sargent? In That's the, the question we all want to know. Yeah, what, what what do you make his odds to win? I'm very curious what different models show. Um, I think we're probably low on him. Or, and... or how about this? If you had to rank the, gol- the golfers in order out of however many it is, 88, 89? How many, where, where, where is he? 88. Where's Gordon Sargent? He's pretty yeah. low. Like, but I mean, like, what does Will, that number start with? We'll definitely mention that he was, he, well, we don't have him broken down versus the rest of the field, uh, right? But you get assumed the rest of the field's worth almost nothing, right? And so he's worth, he's most of the value, but we don't, we don't have the field particularly high, but I'm definitely going to bid on him tomorrow. So we'll see what happens. Your high might be everybody else's. Low, yeah, that's true. So. That's true. That's I mean, true. We, we do typically like a lot of your, the, your, the your low is everybody else's feet. high. Yes. 
you, 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 they have fewer value on him on the field. Um, who do we look at and say they're the most off market? And I won't tell you which way, but I guess I would probably give it away for you. Yeah. I'm trying to think who, like who, who of this off of the outright markets. I think it's going to be somebody that's coasting by on reputation, a guy like a Kepka. Um, I mean, Kepka is the most extreme example, I think where his outright price is off of what his actual performance didn't he win been. didn't he win he the lift win. and the lift? So like that's, that so, makes it even more yes ridiculous and, right i mean i think if, had he not won maybe he's priced where bryson dechambeau is who if bryson had won last week then he certainly would be not priced where he is now but is kepka in a group for us he is right no he's individual no no you're right he is in a group i think which group is he um i'm gonna look for you are you going to look at the value of that group? Yeah, I'll look at the value of that group. You've already priced it out. You're not going to wait and you're not going to rerun with weather changes? I think Will thought that our thing was tonight. So uh, I told him it's not till tomorrow. He is in group things. E. He's in group E. Uh, we have that group. Joining Gary Woodland and Louis Oosthuizen. Yeah, we have that group pretty high. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, you would expect it, right? Those are three warm bodies at least. Yeah. I mean, they're three guys that have, their bodies have seen better days. I hope Kep- Kepka is a guy, I mean, these are guys that are like, Kepka and Woodland are all about if they're healthy. Kepka played through injuries a lot. And so it's hard, it's hard quantitatively to figure out which Kepka is showing up. What you hearing want to you do talk is about Hearing you talk about that thinks, makes me think we have, a, we have a reasonable chance to get Groovy. Yeah. Just to chop that one away. Hopefully, no one else in the Calcutta actually listens to this podcast. So, believe it or not, I'm uh, not giving misinformation, but I also I also get, don't plan to have a lot of exposure on this Calcutta. Just, I think we're pretty chock full. <laughs> I don't I, plan. I, I like to and go, I love our portfolio, but I but yeah, I don't plan to own like a quarter of the Calcutta this year. So. That's, I've talked to a, other people that kind of said similar. So maybe I actually do think, the, I think, the the, I think the pot might be lower this year. I do. I I'm think, I think it it's all on Gordon Sargent. I mean, it's, it's going to, it'll be interesting to see when that first golfer comes up. Uh, is your brother going to do the auctioning? I, I, t- I texted him to see if he can do the auctioning. Oh, I mean, I haven't asked him, but, but you did. So there you go. I asked him. It All looks right. like I'm gonna I'm gonna be the one having to do the auction because uh, Ian has a conflict. So um, we're, we're gonna be back to underachieving again. You want to give you want to give people a pick, Rufus? I mean, my gut says Tony Finau. I don't necessarily show value there. I mean, I showed a four percent edge at twenty nine to one, but I don't think that's there anymore. So twenty twenty five to one is about what it should be. Is that right? Uh, I made it like twenty six ninety eight. I think. Yeah. Although I just, re- I, I'm running a new sim iteration right now with the new weather simulator I worked on building um, today, which I have to say the weather, the weather permutations are very interesting and you can kind of really get down in a deep rabbit hole there, Jeff, because think about there's a chance of thunderstorms Thursday afternoon, small chance. If Thunderstorms delay play. Suddenly the people that were playing, supposed to be playing Thursday late afternoon, maybe they're playing Friday morning. It pushes things back. 
if things get pushed back enough, you have a situation where the second round could bleed into Saturday. But Saturday looks like, to me, I'm guessing it's going to be a complete washout. There's going to be an inch of rain. It's going to have rained overnight before. Um, It's going to be 51 degrees. It's going to be miserable. But in the case that it doesn't, those guys that are stuck playing Saturday morning are like screwed. Um, Provided they don't have, provided they have some, hopefully for them, they don't have a lot of holes left. Um, But if Saturday is a washout, maybe they get better conditions the next day. And so there are just so many different possibilities on what can happen when rain is involved in the weather forecast and thunderstorms. So I, what I worked on today was largely adding proper uncertainty for all these, uh, for all these contingencies. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so Finau is your pick. Do you want to maybe match him? No, I'm, I'm not no. going to, I won't give Finau. Cause I mean, he's not, I want to find someone that I, I mean, I, I want Finau to win for sure. Cause I, he's someone that I, I root for, but I'm going to, I'm going to let you go and I'll, and I'll pick. I want to find mm. someone that where there still is good value, who has a reasonable chance of winning. Actually, I'll go. Okay. I'm going to go DJ. And he's in group C or something, right? For oh us. yeah. He's a grouped golfer. Yeah. It's so weird. Some of these guys are golfing. I make Hard. DJ 2550 as of the last sim run. 25.5 to one. There my, are my, um, my, my pick of the week is, is for the foreseeable future bet against the Red Sox. Every time you can get plus money to do so. It doesn't, really did they matter. lose today? I think they lost, uh, actually no. Uh, yeah, I think they probably lost to the pirates. One of the worst teams in baseball. They're, they're, look, this, they're two and three. Why do you think the Red Sox are so bad? They just, they're bad. Yeah. They lost, they're not the Orioles. One. They lost four to one of the pirates. They're, they're, they're certainly not the Orioles. Um, and, I don't, and I don't mean that in the way I would have said it in 2019. Detroit beat Houston again today. Okay. Anyways. Orioles, Orioles won again. I mean, the Orioles. I'm sure you got more master shit to do. So we'll let you know. I do. I do. I'm, okay. Thanks everyone for listening. Uh, enjoy master's right week. Next week, we have a very special interview with Maria Ho, who is a, you know, one of the, one of the leaders in the poker world and uh, female poker, like personality and all that kind of stuff. And she's super interesting. And I I did the interview already. So uh, it's real good. Oh, I didn't even get a chance to participate. Yeah. That's was, was this, this when I was in Mexico. Yeah. And also yeah. we did this because I knew I was gonna be on vacation next week. So you have an interview in the can and you just can do the, you can do the intro. You can do the first Wait, Jeff. I get to do the first. Settle. I get to do a solo. I get to yeah, do a maybe solo you could part. get someone else. We could have a guest, Ooh. a bet the process guest. Maybe yeah. People maybe who listen to this. Maybe Tom and I could do a master's ever, recap. Yes. You and Tom do a podcast together. I love it. We've never done that. It I maybe I we can get it. Okay. Uh talk to you guys all again next week. Um and enjoy masters. The bottom line is watered down. It seems like they don't get it. Puppeteers are put to end just running off a of letter. 